Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales in Canberra. Just after 2am on Christmas Day 1944, the American Liberty ship Robert J. Walker was torpedoed 40 miles off the New South Wales coast, just near Jarvis Bay. The explosion tore off the ship's rudder, but the merchant ship did not sink. Two hours later, Walker's 20mm gun crew successfully destroyed another torpedo as it sped towards them. A third torpedo was fired at 6am. It hit and eventually sank the ship with the loss of two sailors. A long and wide-ranging search by Australian and American warships and aircraft failed to find the suspected submarine. Unknown at the time, the culprit had been the German U-boat U-862, and this became the first and only sinking by a U-boat off the Australian East Coast during World War II. To discuss the remarkable story of U-862 and the German U-boat campaign off Australia and New Zealand, I'm joined by Captain Dr Jörg Hillman, a distinguished naval historian, and commander of the Bundeswehr Centre of Military History and Social Sciences at Potsdam, and Dr David Stevens, a former naval officer and a historian at the Australian War Memorial. He brought the story of U-862 to greater attention with his 1997 book, U-Boat Far From Home. Welcome to you both. First off, Jörg Hillman, what did the Kriegsmarine hope to gain from sending long-range U-boats into the Indian Ocean and Southeast Asia? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Well, perhaps it's good to elaborate a little bit on the strategy of the navies also before. So during the Emperor's time, uh, Tirpitz had the big plan to fight a decisive battle inside North Sea. However, the strategy failed, as all of us knew, because the British did not accept this strategy of Germany and made a far blockade towards Germany. But a couple of young officers, they learned from these failures of the old history, like Admiral Rader, later Admiral Rader, who learned from his studies from the French navies that perhaps the cruiser war would be a more precise strategy even for a smaller navy like the German navy was. And so he changed this strategy within the 20s and 30s with his limited capacities inside Germany with the Navy. And he said cruiser war would be a distinguished opportunity and possibility for the future. This failed as well. And finally, it was Karl Dönitz who said the U-Wood war as a cruiser war in form of diversion, the effect of diversion for the other fleet is that high that it is a great effort to go with needle sticks into different areas in order to achieve an enemy that he has to put his ships somewhere, but he can never plan where the Germans are. So David Stevens, Germany's Axis partner, had a role to play in these operations. What advantages did the Japanese see in hosting German U-boats in their area of interest? 
What you've got to remember is that the relationship between the two Axis powers, Germany and Japan, was not the easiest relationship. Neither really wanted to have too much interaction with the other. Particularly the Japanese did not want another European power in their area of interest. So when the um, initial agreements, naval agreements, were drawn up at the end of 1941-1942, these restricted German operations to the area of the southwest Indian Ocean, around the Cape of Good Hope. But of course, as the war drew on, uh, both Germany and Japan found themselves increasingly on the defensive. As the Japanese found it too dangerous to supply their own isolated Pacific outposts by surface ships, they had to revert to using their submarines as cargo carriers. And uh, consequently, that meant their submarines couldn't really be used in the Indian Ocean for an offensive campaign. And you've got to remember at this stage of the war, the Mediterranean was closed off to Allied shipping, which meant there was a, a fairly major supply route through the Indian Ocean um, to supply Russia, um, the North African campaign, and of course India. And the Japanese um, wanted to see that interrupted as much as the Germans did. So they proposed greater German efforts in the northern part of the Indian Ocean. And to do that, they offered the Germans the use of their own bases in Southeast Asia. And of course, uh, and that included the main base in Penang and also in the docking facilities that they'd captured from the British in Singapore. Now, of course, the Pacific, uh, the situation in the Pacific continued to deteriorate. And so by the first half of 1944, offensive operations by Japanese had virtually ceased in terms of their submarine um, campaign. And they therefore, through their representative in Berlin, sought permission or sought um, approval from Admiral Dönitz to increase the number of submarines that the Germans were sending to the Far East. If I just may add one, one idea regarding the relationship between Japan and Germany. If you compare the histories of the development between 1919 after the, the Versailles Treaty and the outbreak of World War II in 1939, there is a really rare similarity between the cultural development of both countries. Both were facing in the beginning of 13 that form of nationalism inside their countries. Both of them were uh, facing a rise of um, military engagements and uh, military high powers in the beginning of the 30s and mid of the 30s. And so there's a similarity in thinking between two countries one on the eastern part, one on the western part, which is quite strange. But the axis between Berlin and Tokyo was always quite strong. And indeed, both were, uh, both were on the, the receiving end, I guess you might say, of naval disarmament between the wars, weren't they, which uh, affected their ability to, to build capital ships and made their interest in other means of naval warfare quite, uh, quite similar. Um, you're continuing on... Uh, we understand that U862's commander, Captain Lieutenant Heinrich Tim, had considerable previous sea experience. Can you tell us a little about him? Well, Heinrich Tim entered the service in the German Kriegsmarine in 1933, which was not named Kriegsmarine before, but it was still the Reichsmarine, because the name Kriegsmarine was established in 35. He first served on several minesweepers, and in 1939 he had his first great military success at Heligoland where he located and destroyed the British submarine HMS Starfish. Tim then afterwards joined the U-boat force following the famous comrades of Crew 33. There are some names like Lüth, Prien and Hardigan. Well, and finally managed to become one of the most, I would say, famous German U-boat commanders of World War II, 
All in all, he destroyed nine enemy ships and until 1943 received the Iron Cross First Class, the German uh, Cross in Gold. After that, after World War II, um, he worked a normal life and became one of the first members of the Bundesmarine after 56. Uh, David Stevens, could you tell us a little about U862's capabilities? Yeah, sure. I mean, she was a, a Type 9 Delta II submarine, which was the largest of the Kriegsmarine's long-range submarines. Um, at about 1,600 tonnes, she was twice the size of a Type 7 submarine, which was the one you generally hear about in the Battle of the Atlantic and you often see in movies and television series like Das Boot. Um, but that still makes U-862 about half the displacement of a modern Collins-class submarine, although uh, despite being um, much smaller, she had actually a slightly larger crew than a Collins at 55 people. Um, because she was a larger submarine built for long-range operations, she ha could actually, in theory, steam 24,000 miles, which certainly allows her to get from Germany to Southeast Asia um, without having to refuel, which was obviously very important at that stage of the war. And, um, of course, as all submarines at that period were, they weren't really true submarines, they were submersibles. But having said that, U-862 was fitted with a schnorkel, allowing her to uh, recharge her batteries at um, periscope depth, and so lessening her vulnerability to aircraft because she could stay underwater for much longer. Um, she carried 28 torpedoes. She had bow and stern tubes. Um, she had a 10.5-centimetre main gun plus a very heavy anti-aircraft armament, which the submarines were being fitted with at that stage of the war to protect themselves from, from Allied aircraft. Her sensor fit was certainly state-of-the-art in 1944. She had obviously the attack and a search periscope, uh, passive sonar, a surface search radar, and of course electronic warfare gear to allow her to detect um, uh, Allied airborne radars. But perhaps her most unique capability was an unpowered autogyro, which um, was a single-seat aircraft, if you want to call it that, which was stowed in containers on the rear of the bridge. And that was towed at a certain speed and then could lift off and rise to a height of about 150 metres, which gave the U-boat um, the a theoretical horizon out to 45 kilometres, which, as you can imagine, would be a great advantage, other than the fact that having this thing flying meant it was much slower to bring it down and, and then surface if there was, uh, sorry, uh, submerge if there was a problem. Threat. Indeed. Jörg Hilman, you 862 sailed from Germany in May 1944, so clearly the captain, Tim, would have faced some challenges getting through the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean over to uh, Japanese-controlled Malaya. What can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, we have to admit May 1944. All these big uh, battles have been fought already. Germany was on a way which was, was decreasing in their the general aspects. The war has come already to Germany and all of German or all people in Germany should be quite clear that it would be very difficult to fight till it really end as it was promised and was always spoken of by Adolf Hitler. May 1944, that means two months in front of the or ahead of the resistance attempt against Hitler. May 1944 means that the Holocaust was at its highest end. 
And I mention all these issues because we are always or sometimes telling the history of the Navy, the Kriegsmarine, as if it is was if it is was not a part of the German history, the war history as such. Of course it was a part. And Karl Dönitz played a very decisive role inside this German Navy, but also within inside the whole system. He was one of the most favorite military leaders of Adolf Hitler. He was one of the most trustworthiest leaders Adolf Hitler had. That was the reason why he later on became his successor. Um, and so it was very clear that Karl Dönitz used the U-boat submarines, the, the submarines also as a form for the propaganda. Of course, they did not tell anybody that these boats were sailing towards the Indic and afterwards further on to Australia or New Zealand. But if there would have been a success, it would be a great propaganda issue for Germany. And so this was the mental pressure, I think, which was on Tim as well. He knew he has to be successful. And he knew as well that even if there were other boats who were committed all towards this, this task, um, that he personally has to be successful with his boat. The general idea around this also to secure transports with raw materials is always taken and always written in all kind of books. I think this was a very small issue inside all these propaganda parts. The main idea was fight for Germany far away and try to bind uh, enemy forces in an area which they do not ex really expect. Um, well, what did U-862 uh, face during their trip towards the east? Well, there were enemy destroyers, of course, a different kind of warships. Um, he had to think on the supply, even if he could survive the whole area. It's always important, and we know this from our naval careers, if you even lose or do not have more than three quarters of your petrol, you're already looking for the next supply ship. Um, and I think these were always thoughts he had in mind when he was traveling. All these things had been uh, done in a secret, with a secret, um, and this must be a very heavy a mental power also towards the whole crew of U-862. Um, of course, he had to take care of aircraft attacks. There were special anti-submarine patrols by the uh, RAF and the RFF, uh, Liberator bombers, all these issues he had to face during his way towards the east. So mental power, mental pressure on the person itself, on the crew, and of course always praying that the technical issues on the boat were really working. And you mentioned, David, the um, the snorkels. The snorkels have always been a problem during the time of the Kriegsmarine. And especially in 1944, when the technicians thought they have found a new snorkel, did not work. And so sometimes I doubt whether all these heroic uh, stories on they are diving for hours, they are diving for days, really worked. Well, David, when U862 finally got to the Far East, what sort of basing arrangements did she find in Japanese-controlled territory? Well, she, she got to Penang on the 9th of September 1944 after surviving this long trip through the Atlantic and um, Indian Ocean. Now, 
that I mentioned before was a major Japanese base um, for their eighth submarine squadron. And but they also had bases at Singapore, as mentioned, with the docking facilities, uh, Jakarta and Surabaya in Java. At that time, the Germans had perhaps 200 personnel, which they'd managed to spread around those bases, and uh, they were supporting up to a half a dozen uniboats at a time. Obviously, the, the number of U-boats that were sent didn't equal the number of U-boats that arrived. And of course, once they had arrived, they were going on patrols back into the Indian Ocean and returning to Germany. Penang was known as Base Siegfried by the Germans and had cranes, workshops, um, warehouse space. And that was where the Germans had appointed their commander for the, the area, which was uh, Corvin Captain Wilhelm Doms, who was, um, had been a submarine commander on the way out and uh, then transferred to someone else. Um, recreational facilities, you can imagine coming from Europe and coming to Southeast Asia, the difference um, for the Germans, just having access to things like fresh tropical fruit is a real change. Um, but the Japanese did look after them. They, well, the, the, they didn't um, hinder their recreational facility, uh, recreation, I should say. Um, they were provided, the Germans were provided with servants, um, cars with chauffeurs. They, um, they often went to the cooler climate and the um, hills surrounding Penang. Um, the crew could go and play golf or tennis, fishing trips, etc. And of course, the, um, um, but the, Penang was only a, a pit stop. Um, U862, because of that long trip, had to have a lot of maintenance. So she went to um, Singapore, where in fact they took out the flasks of mercury that um, the German submarine had trans was transporting for the German, uh, for the Japanese war effort, and put back in the raw materials that the Germans wanted from the Japanese for their own um, war effort. Um, Preparing the U-boats was not an easy task because there just wasn't the facilities in terms of you know the, the spare parts, for example, that the, that you really needed, and torpedoes proved a particularly a particular problem because there's only a limited number that had been shipped out in surface ships before the Japanese entered the war, and these um, uh, often deteriorated in the heat um, and the you know the, the humidity of the tropics and they tended to run slow or not work at all and this was a problem that Tim encountered during his his patrol to southeast um, uh, to the Australian waters and of course because there were so few she only managed to embark 14 which is only half her outfit but just as an interest when you talk about the Japanese um, in Singapore for those listeners who may have been there in an Australian naval ship uh, certainly in the 60s and 70s etc they might be interested to know that the base, the bars that were outside Sembawang Dockyard were all given Japanese names rather than the British names that they'd be familiar with, including the, the Great East Asia Co-Prosperity um, Sphere Bar rather than the, the Drake or the Nelson. And of course, um, if you've been to Singapore and visited the Hoa Villa Tiger Balm Gardens, that was actually the German officers' mess during the war. Jörg Hillman, you've spoken a little about Admiral Dernitzen, his plans for U-boats uh, in the Far East theatre. And you've talked a bit about the propaganda value as against the raw materials value. Can you tell us a little bit about that? There is this idea that the raw materials were a, a big issue and getting raw materials onto submarines back to Germany, but you mentioned that perhaps that wasn't as important as people perhaps think. Well, first of all, we have to take into consideration that transporting raw materials on submarines is really a great idea. 
However, submarines were never really constructed for being transporters over long distances for such items. Um, they were constructed, those and or they were rebuilt in order to transport nickel, for example, from uh, the Southeast Asian area back to Germany, also rubber and all these things. Um, however, none of them made the way back. We have to admit this. Even most of them did not arrive in the Southeast Asian issue. But we have to take into consideration and have to acknowledge that if Admiral Dönitz would have been successful with this idea, I think this would have been a great propaganda result for him. And not only for him, but also will get, would have given a great positive impulse to the whole German population to say, look, now it's going on again. We are at the end of 1944. So we are just, the Germans just had five, min, uh, five months more to go. They didn't know it to that time, but we know it today. And therefore Karl Dönitz tried to do everything to put a positive attitude and to stress how important the German submarines are for Germany. David Stevens, how much did the Allies actually know of German intentions for Australasian waters, and, and how did they react to this intelligence? Well, the Allies, as we now know, had a very good intelligence network, particularly in signals and intelligence, and both the Japanese and German communications, or many of them, were able to be intercepted and decrypted. Now, this meant that the Australian Chief of Naval Staff at the time, Sir Admiral, um, or Admiral Sir Guy Royal, um, he received daily updates on what um, was happening, obviously, in his area of interest. And that meant he was fully aware that the Germans were planning um, a, a mission to Australia. In fact, I think he, it was within a couple of days of Dernitz giving the approval that he had the that signal on his desk. And this meant that um, he could understand the problems that they, they were experiencing in um, uh, uh, fitting out their U-boats and um, supplying them with, with what they needed, and also understand where they were planning to operate. And, um, for example, as I mentioned, uh, getting that signal from Dernitz that he'd approved the operation, the immediate, which was going to be off um, the Lewin coast in Western Australia, they were able to route the um, merchant shipping far much further to the south so that when the Germans got there they wouldn't find the shipping. So that's the sort of thing they could do in advance. Um, they also uh, introduced additional anti-submarine patrols both by surface and air and they moved assets down from Darwin and created a, an ad hoc hunter-killer submarine group um, run by the naval officer in charge Western Australia operating at a Fremantle. But the actual greatest danger that the U-boats faced was Allied submarines because I mentioned that both Japanese and German communications were being intercepted and obviously the Japanese had to be involved because they didn't want Japanese anti-submarine forces to attack the U-boats. So that meant the Japanese had to know when and where the German U-boats were going to appear. And of course that meant the Jap and often the Japanese communications were easier to decrypt than the German. And so w the Australian operation was actually planning to have three U-boats operating off the Western Australian coast, but two of those, U-168 and uh, U-537, were sunk very soon after the departure from Java. The first by a Dutch submarine called Zvardvish, and the second by USS Flounder. And both those submarines we were able to 
be placed in a position where they could intercept the U-boat because they know exact, knew exactly when and where it was going to be. In fact, Flounder's sinking report comes out within a half a mile of the planned position of the U-boat at a certain time. And of course, the intelligence picture was never perfect and um, fortunately for U-862, her departure details weren't um, either intercepted or not intercepted in time and she managed to, to make it out in the open ocean and get to um, the Western Australian coast. But there she found that um, those increased air um, patrols were much more than she expected and Heinrich Tim, Tim decided to, well, I'll try the waters um, further east and he went across the Australian Bight and in fact his presence was only detected uh, when he made a mistake really by attacking a Greek merchant ship with his deck gun. So it was rough weather, he surfaced, put a few shots into the, the Greek, um, uh, Greek merchant ship and the Greek ship fired back and a submarine doesn't really want to get into a battle uh, at that miles away from a base. And um, he then thought, right, I'll better go down south of Tasmania. David, may I just put in one question? Do you think that Tim always had a clear knowledge of the whole picture in this area? Because my impression is that he really didn't know what happens around him. And he was not aware which other German ships could have been involved. So he was not uh, aware that Pich, for example, with a submarine was no more in charge. It, that you're quite right. There was a limited amount of information that the German or Japanese intelligence can provide on what was happening. And most of the information that Tim was working on was what he could detect with his own senses. Certainly the information he did get about the position of um, the British Pacific Fleet, for example, when it was coming out, tended to be out of date or wrong about where those ships were going to be. Jörg Hillman, after the attack on the Robert J. Walker... Heinrich Tim took U-862 to try his luck in New Zealand waters. He undertook some risky manoeuvres there. Why would he do this? I think in Tim's analysis of the situation, the maritime operation in New Zealand's waters seemed to be less risky for U-862 than in Australian ones, as the amount of enemy warships in these waters seemed to be less dense. Enemy cargo ships, therefore, also seemed to be an easier prey for U-862. But I have to admit that, well, there was no approval by Dönitz for that. And uh, as we know, Dönitz himself always tried to approve such operations, even in faraway waters. So this was Tim's lonely decision. And even the, the, the uh, diary of Tim does not show what he really wants there. But I think it was a try also to show perhaps a little bit of being self-fittish I can go even faster than Australia. Now I go also to New Zealand to show this. But I think he didn't have a very clear aim on that, what he will find there. Well, David Stevens, where did U-862 go after New Zealand? Well, after her cruise around New Zealand, she only had seven torpedoes left. And as I mentioned, she was having problems with those. Some of them had run slow, some of them hadn't run at all. Um, Tim had planned to return to the area of Sydney. I mean, part of the reason for him going to New Zealand was to let the, um, the hunt die down off the New South Wales coast, and then he could go back. But on the 19th of January 1945, really just about south of New Zealand, 
he received orders, orders from uh, Corvette and Captain Dorms that um, he had to return immediately to Jakarta. Uh, the Japanese by then were expecting a, an Allied landing on the Malay Peninsula and obviously the fall of Penang and Singapore could follow very soon after. So for two weeks, um, U-862 headed back across the um, uh, Australian Bight in really bad weather, but she finally turned north once she'd got past Western Australia. And strange enough, she stumbled across another um, Liberty ship, um, same type as Robert Walker. This one was called the Peter Sylvester. And interestingly enough, it was carrying, amongst other things, a cargo of mules, uh, which the Americans were expecting to use in um, in uh, the um, India-Burma type campaign. Anyway, this um, uh, the Liberty ship, uh, they were actually very well constructed, although very quickly constructed, and it took another five torpedoes to sink her of the seven that he had remaining. Um, 32 men were lost in the action. And Peter Sylvester became the last Allied ship to be sunk in the Indian Ocean. And actually, um, the search for her survivors was a huge search and rescue mission and ultimately successful. But it did. some of the guys were in the water for several weeks. Um, she returned, a UX-62 returned to Jakarta on the 15th of February 1945. And I should say here that her movement signals had been detected. Um, she had to report that she was heading into Jakarta and she had to say when she was likely to get to the rendezvous position. And that was certainly intercepted, but it seems that the decryption came too late to actually put a submarine in position to intercept her because there were at least two British submarines in the area at the time. And then after Jakarta, she moved on to Singapore where she reached on the 20th of February. So York Hillman... When U-862 returned from her second patrol in Singapore and the plan was for her to return to Germany, but she never did, what happened? Well, just before the German unconditional surrender in May 1945, uh, Admiral Dönitz ordered the submarine commanders to hand over the U-boats to the Japanese. Also, in May 1945, of course, he ordered those boats who were in ter territorial waters of Germany to mainly sink themselves. Um, but he didn't do it for those boats who were abroad. And U-862 was taken over by the Japanese Imperial Navy and renamed India 502. And later in September 45, after the surrender of Japan, the boat was confiscated by the US Navy and destroyed. The members of the crew of uh, U-862 were interned by Japanese forces as Germany had ceased to be an ally of Imperial Japan and the first German prisoners were later released by the Allied powers in 1946. The last one returned to Germany in 1948. However, all of them who have been under the control as prisoners of war of more or less West allies had a better uh, fate than those who were under East control. Well, finally... Jörg Hillman and David Stevens, what final thoughts do you have about U862's Pacific Patrol? Jörg, let's start with you. Well, first of all, it was an interesting campaign in the decreasing times of the German Reich. As I already mentioned, it was a great, or it could have been a great propaganda effort. We should never forget, even if we are fascinated by such campaigns, that all of those boats and all of these commanding officers, all of the crews sailed under the swastika. 
So all of them were instruments of the power of Adolf Hitler. And not only, or this, this could be an advice, or just a hit, please do not look only on that single campaign, but try to understand the whole of it. It was the national socialistic system. They conducted war crime, and everybody who served in this navy, in the armed forces, in the Wehrmacht as such, they were a part. And they allowed the regime to act as they acted finally. However, when looking at this uh, campaign, it is uh, a really technical approach and also a technical, huge technical success that both uh, went and have ridden all this long distance towards the southeast of Asia. And finally, indeed, in terms of a containment uh, by the distraction or diversion strategy, I think uh, this trip, this campaign from U862 in its four months war patrol is a very good example that this form of operational thinking and the form of the all over all naval strategy had worked. And Jorge, a, a final question uh, without notice. Given that the U-boat campaign was designed even in the closing days of the Reich to be out there seeking to get back on the front foot to achieve propaganda uh, outcomes or to achieve military outcomes. Even today, is there something special or lingering or still existing about the Esprit de Corps in the U-boat community from World War II? Well, not only within the World War II community of submariners, after World War II, they formed an over-the-world association they exchanged views, they exchanged, but they also exchanged technical issues. So there's a high value inside, I think, this community, which is organized in different countries, but there's an overall world organization as well. I have to admit that submariners sometimes look too much and too detailed to all these technical issues and try to get rid of the more or less put political hat, which is overwhelming always, which has to overwhelm, of course, also uh, naval forces and all other forces which are serving for a country. Um, the submariners just see their campaign, they just see their job, and they, in the World War II and after World War II, the German submariners have always understood themselves as totally non-political. And even Karl Dönitz said, well, I, am, I was always a non-political uh, admiral, which is not true because he joined the party in 1944, in February 1944, after it was allowed for soldiers to join the party, and he became the successor, and he was a highly political military leader. And therefore, I think it's a little bit uh, misleading when submariners say we were always totally unpolitical. And David Stevens, final thoughts. I think it's important to see U862's patrol not just in the voyage itself and what happened, but that bigger picture. Um, obviously, this one patrol was not going to change the course of the war. It's not like that. And as George mentioned, it was a very good example of a containment strategy. And in fact, I arguably, I think U862 um, occupied the attentions of more surface and air assets 
for a longer period of time than any other submarine I've ever heard of, which is not a bad achievement. Indeed. Um, and of course, without the uh, that bigger picture, though, without the um, success of the Allied Intelligence Network, the German plans for operations in Australian waters could have caused far more damage. Um, those three submarines, if they'd been allowed to find the targets they wanted when and where, could well have sunk you know, a dozen ships or so. Although, as I said, that wasn't going to change the course of the war. Um, and of course, uh, it's important to remember that Australia by 1944 was a strategic backwater. The, um, you know, our anti-submarine warfare forces weren't experienced. They weren't um, ex- used to operating with highly technical, um, the latest types of submarines, etc. Um, and um, so this was a bit of a shock to them. And again, tells you why it's so important to have a multi-layered approach to something. And it's not just your ASW capability in terms of ships and aircraft. That intelligence aspect was vitally important. Um, and I think it's worthwhile noting that um, despite the fact that Tim didn't only sink two ships on this last patrol, he had wanted to go back to Sid- uh, Sydney after New Zealand. And in fact, when he com- got back to um, um, Singapore, he, in his post-operations report, he was still saying we should send more submarines to the area off Sydney because um, uh, that's where the, the targets are going to be and the Defences aren't as strong as we experience elsewhere, which was the whole idea of the containment strategy. So what can we say? That um, U-862 um, undoubtedly demonstrated how difficult it is for a a submarine that doesn't want to be found (laughs) uh, not to be found, despite the amount of effort that was um, put into it. So it's certainly worthwhile remembering for that. Well, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to York Hillman and to David Stevens. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales and its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you all for joining us and for more information on the Australian Navy History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. Goodbye for now.